Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. John 19 is where we're at today, and I'm very, very excited to be able to talk uh, with you today about Jesus and his statement from the cross. So Larry's going to read it to us, and then we'll jump right in. Our reading today is from John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and filled, they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on the hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Thank you, sir. Father, give us understanding. This is a huge moment in time that we look back to, but has implications that look forward for us still. God, give us understanding to see what's happening. And God, today, for you to lift heavy burdens off of people because of this moment, because of this statement, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the ancient Greeks, they referred to the perfection of communication, like the pinnacle of oratory skill, as being the ability to say much with little. They used the term to give a sea of matter and a drop of language. That, they believed, was like the pinnacle of oratory skill. Now, unfortunately for you, that's not a skill I have, <laughs> which is why we're often here a little longer than we probably should be. But it's something that we would still recognize all these centuries later is really a powerful skill. It really is. For someone to have the capacity to say much with very little, to have the ability, as they would say it, the ancient Greeks, to give a sea of matter in just a droplet of language. And I think it's actually something that Jesus did rather masterfully. In fact, when you think about it, there's a man who comes to Jesus at one point in his life and says, Jesus, would you sum it all up? Would you tell us what is the greatest commandment? And you might remember that Jesus responds with just two simple statements, that you love God and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus would open that up a bit by saying that on these two things hang, hinge all the law and the prophets with just a little droplet of language, there was a sea of matter wrapped into what Jesus said, all that God desires, everything that he's after can be summed up in just loving him and loving others. And if you do that, you'll follow and obey everything that God desires you to do and the things that he would desire you not to do. All would be wrapped up in those two little statements. It was amazing the capacity that Jesus had to do this very thing to have a sea of matter hidden in a droplet of language, just a droplet of speech. And now in this moment, Jesus on the cross will summarize really the whole of God's plan. He'll summarize the totality of his gospel with a single statement. It's actually just one Greek word that Jesus will speak from the cross right now in this moment, to telestai. It's where we get our rendering of that. It is finished. In this single statement, Jesus will summarize the whole of his gospel, all of his good news. In fact, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he highlighted what the ancient Greeks used to say when he penned these words about what Jesus' statement here, this single Greek word, what it conveys. When he wrote and said, an ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop, it would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word by Jesus. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot attain to it. It is deep, I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. My friends, when you think about it, Jesus had invited humanity, humanity to come to him, and what he promised that they'd find was rest for their weary souls. You remember this. 
This moment, though, with Jesus now on the cross saying that it's finished, this statement is where that rest was purchased. It's where it remains still secure. It's where it it will forever be made available to us. Remember, Jesus had said it in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Scholar and author Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase known as The Message, he would word Jesus' invitation this way. He'd say, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out even on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Think of Jesus' invitation. His invitation to come to him, what what he promised we'd find when we did come to him is rest for when we're weary, rest for our weary souls that are trying and striving and working so hard. This moment, though, on the cross, this statement is where that rest was purchased. It's where it remains secured. It's where it's forever made available to us. You see, we're in the home stretch of our little series on the cross that we decided to jump into this summer. And Jesus will make one additional statement after this that we'll talk about next week. And that seventh statement that we'll learn about next week is a prayer, a quiet prayer to his father, making this Jesus' final statement in his life to humanity. And I want to tell you that his final statement of it is finished, that Jesus' final words to humanity from the cross can become heaven's first pronouncement over you. That as a follower of Jesus, that this becomes heaven's first pronouncement over us. Jesus cries out, it is finished. And as we choose to follow Jesus, heaven echoes that same statement back to us. Because the implications of this moment still reach into our lives and reshape our reality. It is finished. Just three words in English, just one in Greek. You remember, finished. It's actually the same Greek word. It's used only two places in the Bible, and it's in this passage twice. In verse 28, it says that Jesus, seeing that all things were accomplished, to telestai, that's the word, everything's been accomplished, seeing that that was the case, he then spoke up and said that very word, to telestai, it is finished. Now, when you read it in the moment, when you picture Jesus bleeding out on a cross and you hear him say finished, it's hard not to think of Jesus as right now admitting defeat, as if he's been crushed. It's like he's lost or maybe even failed in this moment. All they hear is finished. His life appears at this moment. It's being cut off and it seems to be even having been cut short. It's hard not to assume that what Jesus is thinking in a moment like this is that it's over, that I'm doomed, that I'm finished, that I've lost. However, it's not at all what he says here. Not I'm finished, rather he says it is finished. And there's a reason why linguists and Bible scholars have always translated from Greek to Latin to English this phrase, this term that Jesus uses, not to say that he was finished, but that it was finished. Not simply rendering it as finished, done for, but that it was finished, that all things were accomplished, that that's what Jesus is pronouncing here. You see, the the, the previous fifth statement was Jesus calling attention to himself, the person, when he said, I thirst. But this, the sixth statement, was made calling attention not to himself, but to his work. And what he's saying about his work is that it's finished. The other three Gospels only give us the detail that Jesus cries out with a loud voice in this moment. They make it very clear that this was a moment that everyone that was present was aware of and heard personally. It would have turned their heads and grabbed their attention, but John gives us the detail of what that loud cry was. These were not the muttered words of a victim. John tells us very clearly that this is the conquering shout of a victor. It's finished not the cry of defeat 
or a wail of despair. This is a shout of triumph, a declaration by Jesus that he's victorious. He shouts out, it's finished. Now, for me, I grew up in a, in a sports family, specifically in a baseball family. And so for us growing up, what that meant is that we are taught from a very young age that you're either a Yankee fan or a baseball fan. And we were baseball fans. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of soccer. We were a baseball family. Soccer is not the most complicated of games to understand, but even if you didn't understand the basics of it, of two teams, rival sides, trying to get a ball into a large rectangle, if you didn't understand even the simple rules of it, but you happen to flip through the channels today and come across a game, even in a Spanish broadcast, there's a moment in time in soccer that even for me, as someone who doesn't love the game, really appreciate. And it's when, especially in a Latin American television broadcast, when I flip through and I see the replay on SportsCenter, and what happens is, is the man you know, gets past the defender, shoots and scores, that you hear the commentator begin to yell. It's everything's in Spanish super fast. I don't know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, goal. And you probably know what I'm talking about. The guy just holds it, goal. It goes to commercial break and comes back. The man is still somehow breathing and goal. And even if you understood nothing of soccer, even if you don't speak a lick of Spanish, by the time that man is done, you're confident that something good just happened, right? It doesn't, none of the details matter, but we get it. There is a shout of triumph. There's something positive that just took place. And the same is true in that crowd around Jesus. Even if people don't understand the eternal significance of what's happening in that moment, or all that the prophets had foretold leading up to that moment, they knew that Jesus was crying out in victory, for him to yell, it's finished, it's done, I've accomplished it. Everyone would have understood that Jesus is shouting in victory. He was clear, think about this. He was misunderstood on his previous statement where he had said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some who stood by said, did he say Eloi, Eloi? Is he crying out for, is he crying for Elijah or is he crying to his God? And so Jesus, wanting to be clear, wanting to be certain that he's heard, asked for a drink, essentially clearing his throat, and then was perfectly clear and shouting in victory. Now think about it, though. Christ on a cross was not the portrait of success in the eyes of those who stood by in that moment. So the question of the day was not, is this a good thing that he's yelling? The question of the day is, how could someone dying like that cry out in victory? How could someone who's, who's seemingly defeated as he is, who, who the government has stomped their foot on him and life itself is escaping him, how could he cry out that he's won? It's this beautiful moment where we're left wondering the same thing. What is the it that he's finished? So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a handful of things very quickly, and then we'll wrap up by me illustrating this once again. But what's the it that Christ is saying here? He's finished. Because he says that when all things, the scriptures say, when all things were then accomplished, then he cried out, stating just that, the very fact that it's finished, it's accomplished. You see, it makes a ton of sense if we're going to look at a handful of different things. It makes a ton of sense for us to start with this. His suffering, the first thing. His suffering was finished. His mental, emotional, spiritual, yes, physical suffering is now finished, and soon he will breathe his last. We've all become well aware as we've walked through this series on the cross that Jesus' suffering was not confined just to physical pain alone. No, he also suffered sorrow and distress. Your Bible tells you with his mind and with his soul, even in Gethsemane, he had trembled and then fallen down and, and said that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. You see, in many ways, Jesus' suffering began a long time even before that moment when he first entered Gethsemane. You see, he was holy and spotless his whole life without fault or flaw, perfectly loving everywhere that he went. And yet he was misunderstood. And yet he was criticized and despised and in the end would be rejected again and again and again until finally he'd be abused and abandoned and beaten and now is dying this horrific and shameful death as a criminal condemned to be crucified. Listen to how the prophets spoke of his suffering. The prophets would say it this way, Isaiah chapter 50. 
I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Psalm 22 would say it this way, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They gape upon me with their mouths. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed around me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 69, I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Remember, please, Christ's suffering was voluntary. It's in Mark's gospel as we've walked through it that we noted multiple times that Jesus had made the comment that I must suffer. He was telling us he's doing this willingly. He's embracing this purposefully even. He said that he must suffer. There was this cosmic necessity for God to come and suffer among us to display the brokenness of our world and simultaneously the beauty, the captivating beauty of the love of God on display for us. There's a personal necessity that he would suffer, not just for, not for himself personally, but for me personally. He had to take my place because there was a legal necessity for him to suffer. I had incurred a debt and it needed to be paid for. And so Jesus would come and pay it. He'd absorb the cost himself rather than demanding it at my hand or at my blood. And now his sorrow, his suffering, has finally come to a close, and he cries out, it's finished. It's his suffering, but, but what else is it? He's, he's referring here to far more than just his life being finished, than just his breath leaving his body. It's fair to say a second thing. That's that the fulfillment of every Old Testament type, foreshadow, and promise was finished. It was accomplished. Everything that the prophets had foretold about him had been fulfilled. In fact, that's what it says here in John 19, verse 28. Remember that when all things were then accomplished, this is when he spoke up. You know, when Jesus drank the sour wine they offered him before making this statement, he swallowed a lot more than just a peasant's beverage. He had now officially drank of every Old Testament picture and prophecy relating to his life and to his death, the final being him requesting this drink. Jesus, God in the flesh, had known that every prophecy regarding his life was fulfilled except for that final request. When he cried out, I thirst, not a single prophecy had failed. All had been fulfilled. Yes, there are still things that are yet to happen, like passing his spirit into his father's hands will happen next. And then the piercing of his body with the spear, the preservation of his bones without them being broken. Yes, of course, the placing of his body into a rich man's tomb, even the raising of his body back to life. But everything that needed to happen up until this point is done and fulfilled. There's nothing more for our Savior to finish. And when all was fulfilled and accomplished, he cried out, it's finished. Every type and foreshadow seen in the Old Testament was personified and experienced to completion in the person and work of Jesus. He was the deliverer like Moses rescuing his people. He was a champion like Joshua securing our place in a promised land. He was the source of life like the rock in the wilderness that water gushed out of to give the people life. He was the sacrificial lamb slain on the day of atonement. He was the scapegoat that took our sin and would be found in solitude and isolation. He was the tabernacle himself, the holy God dwelling amidst, amongst his people. He was the altar, the one place where God's wrath would be appeased, where blood would be shed. He would become the resurrected prophet like Jonah. Jesus was God's promised deliverer who came to take away the sin of the world. And all of that typology, all of that imagery had been fulfilled. And so Jesus boldly cries out, it's finished. His physical suffering, it's over. Every image that the Old Testament had prophetically painted of him was fulfilled in living color. But what else is he saying here? He's saying that the work that the Father had given him to do, it was done. And a part of that work is a third thing, that Jesus was tasked, tasked with the purpose of showing us who God is and what he's like. And Jesus is saying, that's done, it's finished, it's completed. In fact, it's in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that it says that no man has ever seen God at any time. The unique, only Son or the only begotten of God who is in the bosom, in the intimate presence of the Father, 
He has come to declare him. The Amplified Bible says it this way. He has revealed him and brought him out where he can be seen. He has interpreted him and he has made him known. This is one of the reasons Jesus came was to show us who God is, to demonstrate for us, to be seen before us, showing us what God is like. In Hebrews, it says it so beautifully where it says that he's the express image of the Father. The, the picture's awesome. The, the way that God illustrates this idea, it's the, the idea, the term is the express image of God. That's who Jesus is. It's the term used to, uh, to express minting a coin. The press of the coin will create exact duplicates with everything it hits. And it's saying that Jesus is the exact duplicate, like two coins that came off the same press of the Father. But the Father is one that we cannot see. He's concealed, but Jesus is revealed. And if they're cut from the same mold, then they are the exact duplicate of each other. And so the questions you have about a God you cannot see are answered by looking at the God that you can see standing before you. Because Jesus gives us the greatest and clearest revelation of the nature and the character of God which means that God is at least as compassionate as Jesus was seen to be, at least as patient as Jesus was, at least as loving as Jesus proved himself to be, at least as merciful and gracious as Jesus was seen again and again in his treatment of people. My friends, it should go without saying then that if you want to know who God is, then then you have to learn about Jesus. And to learn about him, then you really need to know this book then you need to know his story. And this is for us as a church, this is why we emphasize expositional preaching of the scriptures because he's not just the God of our creating. He's the God who's revealed in the pages of this book. If we, if we move away from the book and we leave it to our natural intuition, we'll only ever make a God for ourselves in our own likeness. We'll create for ourselves a God who does not surprise us at all. He's one who's angry with what we're angry with. He's repulsed by what we're ashamed of. He affirms what we're proud of. And if we shape and construct a God on our own, we'll find ourselves saying, well, would you look at that? My God looks an awful lot like me. But our God is constantly surprising us. His grace, his unmerited favor, the kind of love he had for us was something that we would have never predicted. We could have never forecasted and we never would have trusted if it's not for the accounts that are recorded for us in this book time and time again who display him, that display him so beautifully for us to look at each week together. You see, his work was done. His job was complete. The task, it was finished. But what was that task, that job, the thing that Jesus came to do? Well, he came, yes, to suffer, and he's saying it's done. He came to fulfill every portrait, every foreshadow and type and image that the Old Testament prophets gave us, and he's saying it's completed. And he also came to give us life. That's a fourth thing. He came to give us life. Jesus told us this, that this is why he came, to give us life, a quality of life. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, It says that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Now, people who don't know or follow Jesus, yes, they're alive. There are many people alive today on planet Earth who are alive, they're living, and they don't have Jesus. But what it's speaking of here is that they're missing a quality of life. It's talking about the life, life the way it was intended and created to be before sin and Satan came in and destroyed and corrupted it. It's talking about something unique that the rest of the world hasn't found and isn't experiencing that you and I can find in Jesus. He explained it this way himself. He says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I mean, please hear me, my friends, to Our choice to follow Jesus was never meant to simply be viewed as an eternal fire insurance policy. No, following Jesus is about experiencing eternal life, life as God intended it to be, beginning today while still here on planet Earth. You see, I believe as a follower of Jesus, if that's your choice to to live as a Christian, then you have a quality of life that the world doesn't have and can't find anywhere else. And that's in large part because our identity is not shaped or controlled by external, ever-changing things like money or a job or relationship status or people's approval of us. No, our security and significance is lifted out of that ever-changing, broken system 
and now is found rooted in the person of Jesus himself. That is where I find my security, knowing that he is committed to me and so very capable. That is where I find my significance, that I am loved by him so much that I find him crying out on a cross in my place. For you as a follower of Jesus, you can know with certainty that you're loved, regardless of failures or shortcomings. Romans 8 would say that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He will never love you any more nor any less that he is committed to you. He loves you. As a follower of Jesus, you can know that your life has great purpose because God wants to use your life regardless of my own or your own self-perceived inabilities or limitations or lack of gifting. No, the Spirit of God now is housed inside of us, moving and working through us, transforming us, and giving our lives incredible eternal purpose. The power of God at work in us. Oh, we're loved and have purpose, and we have a confidence that my life is not just a a bunch of circumstances strung together by random chance. No, it's far more than that, because Jesus would tell his followers, look at the grass, and look at the flowers, and look at the birds, look at their beauty and their order, and how God cares for them. Aren't you of so much more value, though, to him than they? Don't worry about your life, Jesus said, if that's true. My friends, we even have an eternal dwelling place that's secured. We, we have a belonging that's happening. We belong with him. You have all of that and more because you have Jesus. And he's crying out, it's finished. It's accomplished. It's secured. What's that last thing that he's communicating here maybe to us that he's accomplished, that he's fulfilled, that he's finished? Well, it's simple, it's straightforward. It's that he saved us in this moment. He's saving us from sin and Satan and separation. Jesus had told us why he came. In Luke 19, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to save us from our sin. He came to rescue us from the power of Satan. And he came to remedy the problem of separation between us and God in life and in death. And for that to happen, God who's perfect has to suffer in the place of imperfect man. Because my sin earned judgment and God is holy and he's just. And so for justice to be served, someone had to pay. Someone would need to die. Someone's blood would need to be shed. Not just any blood, but if it's not me, then it's the blood of a perfect, innocent substitute and sacrifice. It's been wisely said that the birth of Jesus, it would bring God to men, but the cross of Jesus in this moment, it brings man back to God. But the gospel message is not just that Jesus would die as a sacrifice to save me from the penalty of my sin. It's that Jesus also lived in perfection as a substitute for me. Yes, he took my sin upon him at a cross, but when he did, and when I place my faith in him, I receive his righteousness. He took all that was wrong about me and he paid for it. And I now receive all that is right about him and am rewarded for it. I please God because of it. Think of it like a bank account. If your accounts are negative, his death between you and the Father, his death paid for that penalty and, yes, brought your balance to zero to where you do not owe the authority residing over you anything. But his perfect life also placed credit and merit inside that account in the eyes of the Father so that I now have an inexhaustible amount as a balance. It's not just, the gospel is not just that I no longer owe God, it's that I now please God. I'm now seen as righteous because of what Jesus did in my place. Jesus took my broken identity all the way down to my sin and my shame, and in exchange, I was giving the identity and title of a prince of heaven, where he's now sharing his wealth and his home and his authority and his sonship with me. See, Jesus being my substitute in this moment and crying out that it's finished is bigger than God just providing a way for me to be forgiven. No, forgiveness is not his end goal. Redemption, buying back, was not the final stanza in the eternal song of God. Restoration is. 
Not mere redemption to be forgiven and purchased and bought back. No, no, no. Restoration is the end goal of God. The chorus, you could say, of God's eternal song is that he wants his family back. And in this moment, he's celebrating, saying that he's made it possible. And Jesus, with his arms outstretched, will lift his body and simply yell, it's finished. I mean, when you think about it, the idea of a sacrifice for sin, it's, it's found all throughout the whole storyline of the Bible, isn't it? From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, when, when sin first enters creation, they have animals sacrificed to cover their sin and shame, to create a covering for them. It'd be their son, Abel, who offered a lamb as a sacrifice. And, and it tells you in the scriptures that God was pleased by that sacrifice. It would be Noah who would also offer blood sacrifices to God. And then it would be Abraham. <clears throat> Had God himself provide a sacrifice for him and his son to offer as a, an act of obedience and worship. It would be in Egypt when the whole of the nation would make a sacrifice. They'd shed the blood of an innocent substitute so that the judgment of God would pass over their homes. Fast forward all the way to Aaron and the priestly tribe who would serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The priests would offer daily sacrifices through those eras. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In fact, it's, it's kind of an, an odd thing, but when God gave instruction for the construction of the tabernacle, he made provision for every utensil and every piece of furniture that would be found inside of it. An altar, the laver, the, the, the table, the lamp, the veil, the lampstand, but there was no instruction for a chair. Because there is never to be an end to the sacrifice and bloodshed. It was to be an unending, vicious, gory mess. A priest could never sit and rest because the work was not yet done. But Jesus in this moment is crying out, it's finished. His substitutionary sacrifice, pain once and for all, for all of the sins of the world, he paid it so completely, so fully, that there's no longer another need for any other sacrifice. There's no longer a need for anything else to ever be done. The debt has been paid off in totality. So fully was it paid that the Bible says that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and that Jesus has sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The imagery should not be lost on you. That Jesus is seated because the work is finally done, because the debt was paid, because there's nothing left to accomplish for man to be reconciled back to God. You see, the cross, it removed our sin, the, the thing that once separated us from God, and it forever reconciled us back to him through faith in Jesus and his finished work on our behalf on the cross and it dealt a final death blow to Satan's reign of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. I mean, when you think about it, God's divine self-satisfaction, it's only seen twice in all of human history, where it seems as if God took a deep breath to admire what he accomplished. It happens once in the Old Testament and once in the New. It happens once at the dawn and creation of all things, and then once at the consummation and rescuing of all things. The first time it happened was when he completed the work of creation and he stood back and said, it is very good. And now it's happening again where he's completed the work of redemption. And as he steps back, he says, it is finished. And at the end of that sixth day of creation, he entered into rest. And at the end now of this sixth statement from the cross about redemption and recreation, he enters into rest. You'll find next week his seventh statement is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he enters into rest. It is finished. According to some commentaries, and, and even most scholars would say it, the most common use of this word in the, in the Greek and Roman world 
in Jesus' day was in collecting debts, that it was used as a legal term. In fact, there's ancient papyrus that was unearthed in Egypt that were ancient tax documents that had this word written over top of the fees that someone would need to pay. An abbreviation of this tetelestai, just teleo, uh, that it's been accomplished or paid, or at least in one account of these ancient papyrus they found, it's the full word, tetelestai. And from that, then, we understand that one of the ways this was used in the culture was that it was stamped on things to make a statement that it was paid in full and that you don't owe anything to anyone, that the debt is canceled, and that that is what Jesus is crying out on the cross. Three words in English, just one word in Greek. From that Greek word, teleo, to finish something, to telestai, though it speaks of purpose, completion of something that you had an intention of doing. I could illustrate it this way. <clears throat> As newlyweds, Lindsay and I, we, we began to scape, scrape together everything that we had to try to convince a bank to give us a loan so that we could try to get into the housing market. We got married in 2006. It took us a couple years to get to that point. And unfortunately, the market had dipped for so many people who were already in the market. But for us, it created a unique opportunity for us to potentially buy a home. And once we finally convinced someone to give us a loan, we found that the only thing that we could really afford was this little two-bedroom, two-bath house that was rather dilapidated. In fact, it was one of what many people saw all over the market during that era. It was a bank-owned foreclosure. And it seemed that the previous owners, as they departed and left the keys in the house, that they had kind of trashed it, even maybe potentially intentionally. There was water damage and damage throughout the house uh, that seemed like it was things that potentially were done intentionally. But for us, it was all the shot we had at getting into a home, but it made for an extremely overwhelming task. I can remember when we found out that the bank took our offer, we heard from our realtor saying, you, the bank just called and said, you weren't their best offer but they said that they're going to give you a shot to close this house. We weren't just an investment group coming in to flip. It was very gracious of them, and I remember feeling so relieved, and at the same time, a crushing weight. Because I remembered the smell inside that house of mildew and musty, and, and I remember seeing the floors were warped, and I remember hearing that the water had been shut off for months because of some sort of a leak that they couldn't place or figure out, and I remember hearing about all the issues that this house had and all of a sudden felt the pressure of how am I, how are we going to do this? And so we got the keys and began the process quickly. And we worked diligently for years towards a goal. Our goal was to finish it and not live in it forever, but to finish it and eventually to sell it. And that meant for us, we took sections of that house down to the studs and then rebuilt it from there. It was a ton of work. But when we finally got to the point where we finished it and sold it and handed over the keys to another couple who moved in behind us, I cannot begin to tell you what that felt like. That moment that, that, that carried with it this tremendous relief, not just because we finally had money coming into our account rather than going out of our account. It wasn't just that. It was because I knew this is your problem now. I knew this is yours to worry about. This is yours to work on. I knew that because my work was done and I handed the keys over to them. I will never go back to that little house on Timber Trail and knock on the door and say, I'd love to come and work in the irrigation system in the back. It always gave me fits. I'll never go back and say, can I come and try to, try to deal with that front toilet that didn't want to drain? I'm never going to show up and say, hey, I know we tried our best to refinish those cabinets, but I'll bet they're due for an overhaul yet again. I'll never go back and feel the pressure, feel compelled to go back and offer my services or put in the work ever again because our work was finished. Our task, it was completed. The goal that we had set out to accomplish, it was reached. And that is what Jesus has done here which means that we ought not ever to walk back and knock on salvation's door ever again to ask to come in and do some work. To ever again ask to come in and to try a little harder. To ask to ever again come in and say, but it's my responsibility, I need to make sure that things are working and that they're right and that they're perfect. Ever, ever, we're never again to go back to salvation's door and knock and say, Jesus, I'm here to do the work that I feel necessary to do. 
You see, the feeling of handing over those keys, the relief and the joy that was wrapped up in that moment is what we're meant to experience when we hear Jesus cry out on a cross that it's finished. He's saying, I'm taking the responsibility off of you. I'm taking all of that work away from you and saying, I've done it instead for you. You're free. You don't have to feel the weight or the pressure to make it right or pretty or perfect ever again. It's finished. You could say it this way. His first word, final words, excuse me, his final words from the cross become heaven's first pronouncement over you if you choose to, by faith, follow Jesus. Because this is what now heaven says of us. Trevor, it's finished. It's done. It's done, Trevor. You feel the pressure. You think you have to try harder, to work harder, to do better. Trevor, it's done. It's finished. There's an author, a Greek scholar by the name of Dr. Wiest, who writes extensively about how this little word is given in the in the perfect tense. If it was the past tense, by illustration, Dr. Wee said, it would be you would say that I went and closed the door. But if it's the perfect tense, you would say the door is closed. By implication, you're saying it's been closed and it remains closed and it stands today forever, or at least for now, it is remaining closed. And Dr. Wiest would say, because this is used in the perfect tense, what it's communicating to you and to me is that it was finished. As a result, it is forever finished. And because of that, it stands today and always finished. That it's the moment in time of handing over the keys and going, ah, that Jesus has done this for us. There are several things that every religion shares in common with the exception of Christianity because Christianity doesn't fit that grouping. Not the least of which is that every religion presents a list of requirements that parishioners or practitioners need to do to reach God or to attain to enlightenment. But Christianity is so different in that the scriptures teach us that God gave us his law so that no person would ever feel good enough or justified. It's to function, it says, as a mirror to reveal my flaws and my deep need for a savior. The gospel is not requirement and rule. It's essentially news, not a list at all. Something that you must believe about what God has past tense done and accomplished for you that impacts your present tense reality which is so different from every other religion that just generates a list of requirements of do this and feel this pressure. But the Christian message, oh, it's terribly offensive, and yet it's simultaneously incredible news because, yes, it tells me I'm far worse than I had imagined, but simultaneously it's telling me I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. I am broken enough that Jesus had to die for me. I could not rescue myself. But I was loved enough by heaven that he was willing to die for me. Buddha's dying words to his followers were strive without ceasing. Jesus' final statement to humanity before breathing his last was, it is finished. The gospel tells me that Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself. He did everything that was needed and required for me to reach and to please God. If you haven't already done so, just close your Bible. Scholar A.W. Pink, he writes that eternity will be needed to make manifest all that Tetelestai contains within it. Let me just wrap up and land the plane by telling you over the years the different ways that I've read scholars uh, use this word or reference this word from the cultural context of Jesus' day, saying this is how people in that time frame were using this word. Let it paint a picture for you of what Jesus is saying. One of the uses that scholars will point out to or point out for you is that servants would use this term. In fact, there's ancient writing that's outside the Bible of a, a Roman family with a son who is given a task by his father to go and do something. And when he finally returned home at the end of the fable, he gives this statement to his father, to the master of the home, that the job was accomplished. He said to Telestai, there's imagery here. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7 says, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus, as a son and a servant, with his arms outstretched, is saying, Father, I've accomplished what you've sent me to do. As a servant would address his master, even as a son would address his father. It was used also, other scholars point out, as a priest who would examine a lamb, and when the lamb had finished and passed inspection, when it was acceptable, that this would be the pronouncement, that, that it's finished, it's passed. In fact, one writer that I read even just this last week, he suggested that this moment in time would have taken the minds of those who were standing by to the priests on the Day of Atonement, where they would come out after offering a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, on behalf of the people, they would come out and pronounce the Hebrew equivalent of this Greek word. They'd come out and pronounce, it is finished. They were saying that, the priests were stating that this has been acceptable. They're telling the people that you can rest now. Your sin has been covered. Today it's been done. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Old Testament sacrifices, they covered sin, but they could never really take it away. But Jesus accomplished what all of the Old Testament sacrifices could not he fulfilled all of their imagery on a cross in this moment. Yes, it was used by a servant to his master. Yes, it was used by a priest making the statement to the people that the sacrifice was accepted. But it was also, scholars say, used by artists. An artist who was painting a portrait or an artist that was sculpting the bust, an image of a person, when they would unveil it, would use this term to telestite. This was their statement that there's nothing else that needs to be added to the beautiful portrait that the artist has presented before you. That there's no detail that needs to be added to the image that I'm looking to leave in your presence so that you're clear of what this person looked like. To Telestai, here it is, the masterpiece complete. Think of the portrait that God has painted throughout the ages of who he is and what he's after and its final Stroke of the brush was Christ on a cross, praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The final imprint left on that image, on the bust, that sculpture, uh, the image that God is now seen through Jesus by us, that we get a picture of what God is like, that Jesus is in this moment saying, I present now to you the fullness of my heart, a full, complete picture of all that I am and all that I desire. Used by a servant, by a priest, by an artist. And then, like I mentioned, it was used in banking. When a debt was paid, they would mark it with these words to communicate that that debt was paid in full. It was also used, though, of prisoners, because for many prisoners, you'd be put in a Roman cell, and on the post of the door of your cell, they would nail there the crime that you had committed. But when you had served your time, when you were no longer having some debt against society, they'd take that down and they'd write over top of it, the judge himself writing over top of it, this word to Telestai. You would then be given that to travel through your life with so that every time you were reminded of the mistakes that you made, every time someone came and questioned you, hang on, weren't you that criminal? Weren't you that crook who did that thing and deserves judgment? You could pull it out and say, but it's been paid for. The imagery is picked up on in Colossians chapter 2, where it says the handwriting of ordinances against us, it literally means the evidence, all of the evidence against us, that Christ says to our accuser that they, that evidence was nailed to the cross with him and paid for by him. As the great hymn writer E.M. Hall put it, Jesus paid it all. All to him I own. Sin, it left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The last thing I read that a scholar said this was used for was a battle cry. That a military leader, when they realized that victory was theirs, that they would cry out to Telestai that it's finished. So that their men knew 
the victory was theirs. Their enemy had been defeated. And in this moment, Jesus is crying out from a cross. It is finished. This is the words of a victor. This is in the words that Christ, he would shout, he's shouting them out in triumph. It was his final word from the cross, and it becomes the Father's first pronouncement over me and you. Everything that was necessary and needed for you and me to be made right with him again was provided for and paid by Jesus in this moment. Not a lot of things, not sort of finished, not almost paid for, not conditional at all. Everything finished, paid in full, unconditional. As Jesus cries out, it's finished. It's hard. Life is hard. We get weary. We're worn out. Our life is a rat race. We're always looking to do more or accomplish something. Where we feel this internal pressure constantly. This word breathes life into a soul like that. Jesus, remember, had invited humanity to come to him. And what he promised you and I would find was rest for our weary souls. And this moment, this statement, is where that rest was purchased. It's where that rest remains secured. It's where it is forever made available to us. As Jesus said, it's finished. And so, Father, we thank you for this incredible and powerful moment. All of human history leading to this moment where you graciously and lovingly would do all that was needed for all of humanity to be rescued. Jesus, lift burdens today. Jesus, breathe life into the weary today. For every lie that's believed today, about what we have to do and how we need to prove ourselves and need to work harder to gain favor and access to you. God, release all of that. Drive all of that away with this statement. May the shout that you made from the cross drive and drown out those internal words that we catch ourselves saying so often. Jesus, this moment is so very powerful, but only you by your spirit can can drive it into our hearts and give it as such a precious gift today. And so, Father, that's what I'm asking. God, in my own heart this week, there were things that, God, this meant so much to. There were insecurities and pressures that Jesus, that this addressed. And I pray the same for my friends who are here. Jesus, we love you. And when we look your direction, we're so very impressed and captivated. You're beautiful, Jesus, that you do this for us. A God who could create everything and yet enter creation to give yourself in order to be reconciled with it again. Jesus, we thank you. You're good. So, Jesus, we worship you because you're good. So why don't we do that right now? Let's take a moment and let's just worship Jesus, who is good, so, so very good. Why don't you do that with me? Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.